Thank you. Um, I am going to say some things that uh, are very much a part of where my thinking has gone in the last few years. And uh, they're a little bit offbeat, but my contention is thoroughly biblical. They're the two things, but they will be offbeat. For 10 years, I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. And the one thing I couldn't talk about is Jesus taking the punishment for our sin, primarily because there was no consensus as to what sin was and is. And of course, you may go with those people who say, but there are all kinds of absolutes. And I guess we're all agreed on that. But the truth is that I'm a sociologist. I was teaching at an Ivy League school with sociology and anthropology students. And they know that what is sin in one societal system is not sin in another societal system. When people say that sin is relative, from a sociological, anthropological point of view, it certainly is relative. Uh, what is sin in, among the Trobian Islanders is not sin among Europeans. What is sin among Europeans is certainly not sin among the people in Saudi Arabia. Sin is defined different ways in different societal contexts. So you could never talk about Jesus has come to deliver us from sin until you first define what sin was. So we set the word sin aside and we came up with another word. And the word was humanization. Sin is anything that dehumanizes us. Anything that diminishes the dignity or the humanity of another person. Sin is what dehumanizes. Get that strong. The second line is righteousness is anything that enhances our humanity. Postulate number one, we are all homo sapiens struggling to become human beings. None of us are human beings. We are only homo sapiens struggling to become human beings and some of us are more humanized than others. Some of us are less humanized than others. Some of us choose lives in which we dehumanize other people and we become dehumanized ourselves in the process. How many of you know marriages where people are being dehumanized in the marriage? The way people are talked to, the way in which they treat each other. It's a dehumanizing relationship. It's made us open to divorce in certain instances, has it not? That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. That Jesus came into the world not so much to get us into heaven when we die, but to enter into personal relationships with us, relationships which would humanize us. I would always start with this very simple statement because all my students were acquainted with Abraham Maslow because I taught at the University of Penn from 65 to 75. They all knew Abraham Maslow and knew about what it meant to be a self-actualized human being. And so while we didn't talk religion, we talk, could talk about self-actualization and what it means to be a self-actualized human being. That kind of conversation they understood. And when I asked them what that meant, they would say, well, to be a self-actualized human being was to be loving, to be gracious, to be empathetic, to be caring, to be forgiving. They had a long list of traits that made somebody, anybody, a self-actualized human being. And I would then ask the next sociological question. How does one take on these wonderful characteristics? How does one move from being homo sapien to a human? And they would always answer the same way. The only way you can become humanized is to have a personal relationship 
with somebody who has these qualities. You can only become as humanized as those with whom you have an intimate, ongoing relationship. And they would all agree. To become completely human, what would you have to do? And the answer was always the same. You would have to have an intimate relationship, ongoing, with somebody who is totally actualized, a complete human being who had all of these traits and perfection. And the next question is obvious, do you know anybody like that? And the answer was no. And that, of course, is the bad news, that we find in the secular humanistic value system an attempt to become fully humanized, and they understand what that means, but they're not quite sure how to achieve it because you can only achieve it by having an intimate, ongoing relationship with, in fact, an actualized human being. It's at this point that we begin to talk about Jesus. And the salvation that I'm talking about is a contradiction of much of what I had learned. I thought our salvation was brought about because of what Jesus did on the cross. We're having these long arguments these days on the penal substitutionary doctrine of the atonement and other theories of the atonement. I am here to declare biblically that it is not the cross where we find our salvation. That is not my theology, it's the theology of the Apostle Paul. In the 15th chapter of Corinthians, you will read these words. If Christ be not resurrected from the grave, what? Our faith is vain and we are still what? In our sin. You say, I thought our sin was taken care of on the cross. No, here's how your sin is taken care of. When you enter into a personal relationship with the resurrected Christ, when Jesus invades you, permeates your being, he transforms you from within, and he destroys the sinful characteristics of your humanity. He, he absorbs them into himself. He makes them his own. You become saved not by believing in a doctrine of the atonement, which is the big argument these days. You are saved if you have a personal transforming relationship with the resurrected Jesus. Not because I said so, but because the Bible says so. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we're all lost. And so the real question to me is not what is your doctrine of the atonement, which they're all fighting about, especially in England these days. It's not that. Do you have a relationship with the resurrected Jesus? The earliest creed in the church was not the doctrines of the atonement, and I can list at least five of them in the next 10 minutes if that became necessary. It's not that. The earliest creed of the church was simply this. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he Lord? No. They, weren't, they hadn't quite developed the doctrines that we think are so crucial. The substitutionary doctrine of the atonement, so far as church historians tell us, didn't come into being until Anselm did it, about something like about 600, 700 years later. And then Calvin and Luther made them normative. But the truth is that before the doctrine of substitutionary doctrine of the atonement, there were all kinds of other doctrines running around. Elaine Pagels out of Princeton University will tell you that the early church was all over the place with trying to come up with doctrines. But there was one thing that all the Christians held in common, that Jesus was resurrected, that you could surrender to a personal transforming relationship with Jesus, and that relationship will humanize you. It will make you into the loving person. And the fruits of the Spirit are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, endurance. You know the fruits of the Spirit in the fifth chapter of Galatians. These come not by believing in a doctrine, but by surrendering to the resurrected Jesus and allowing him to become Lord of your life. 
Now, having said that, having said that, there's a couple of other things that I want to say before I go any further. Incidentally, Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit theologian, referred to uh, Jesus as the Omega Man. The Omega Man. It's what, in fact, all humanity is striving to become at the end. That's what Omega is all about. Jesus is the Omega Man, and he comes as, quote unquote, the second Adam. We all become sinners because of our relationship with the first Adam. We all become new creations through our relationship with the second Adam. He is this transforming presence. Now here I'm gonna get just a little tricky and then we'll open up for questions. So postulate number one, salvation is about becoming a human being. It's about becoming a human being. That means delivered from sin, of course. But that only happens with an ongoing relationship with the Omega Man, the ultimate human being, and that's Jesus Christ. The next thing is that Jesus saves us as the resurrected Lord of history. And the Orthodox Church has this down much more than the Western Church does. The last thing is this. Martin Heidegger, the German existentialist philosopher, really ridiculed Christianity because of our emphasis on heaven. And he ridiculed it for a very good reason, and if you're in the academic world, you will get this thrown at you. Here it is. If you believe in an afterlife, which is glorious and wonderful as you Christians say it is, what you really do is you diminish the significance of life in this world. This life becomes unimportant. I grew up with that. This life is not important. This world is not my home, I'm what? Just a passing through. I grew up believing that, that in fact, uh, I had to, re I, singing with eternity's values in view, Lord, with eternity's values in view, that I, I, I shouldn't even think about this life, I should think about eternity and where I'm going. And that whole emphasis makes us subject to ridicule because it diminishes the significance of life here and now. My response to the students who were followers of Heidegger was this, I would say, how long have you lived? I'd pick on some guy like you, Ben, and say, how long have you lived? How long have you lived? That's not true. 36 years is how long your heart has been pumping blood. How long have you lived? When I was in the ninth grade, they took us to New York City. I was running around at the top of the Empire State Building. I stopped, I looked over the city, and I froze. I lived that scene the skyscrapers of Manhattan. I live that moment with such hyper intensity that if I was to live a billion years, that moment would still be who I am and what I am. I can recall it even at the split second. I can see it even if I, even if I stop for a moment. It's part of who I am. I eternalized that moment. I picked that moment out of time and made it part of my eternal now. And then I looked at the student and would say, now, now that we know what we mean by being alive, how long have you lived? And I remember the student saying, when you put it that way, Doc, maybe a minute? You know, maybe a minute and a half? I don't know, because most of my life has been the meaningless passage of time between all few moments when I was really alive. Ah, I've got you. What Jesus came into the world to do is to empower us to live life more abundantly. 
so that every moment can be lifted out of time. I mean, you're not going to be able to do it, but you can certainly do better than you have been doing. I mean, you can, in fact, lift out of time moments. And the only thing that is keeping you, the only thing that is keeping you from experience the moment with full intensity to have what Maslow would call a peak moment. The only thing that keeps you from these peak moments is that you don't have the energy to do it. And you don't have the energy to do it for two reasons, guilt and anxiety. Guilt keeps you oriented to the past. Anxiety keeps you oriented to the future. Ah, but if you're in Christ, he alleviates the guilt. He abolishes the anxiety. You know, you have Bill Gaither singing, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Exactly. You're not anxious. You're not guilty. I mean, this doesn't happen instantaneously, but the entering of Christ into your life begins to deliver you from the burdens of guilt and the anxieties of the future, and that equips you to live with hyper-intensity in the here and in the now. And this is what it's about. It's a Christ that breaks into history, the Omega Man at the end of history, coming to the here and now. Of course, people ask me, you've diminished the importance of the cross. Well, the cross is of great importance because what Jesus calls us to, very important, is a radical lifestyle. I mean, you were talking about the Gospels, the red letters of the Bible. We have this movement called the Red Letter Christians. We're red letter Christians. We're paying great attention to the red letters. Nobody wants to pay attention to the red letters. First of all, we, we're, I'm in trouble. Shane Claiborne said to me, you're retired now. What are you living on? I said, well, I have IRAs, and I, I put money away in the bank. And Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt. He did say that. Did he not? You say, well, you're not going to take him seriously. I said to Shane, well, you don't understand, Shane. Uh, I, I have to think of the future. When I, you know, my wife and I, what are we going to eat? Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink and wherewithal ye shall be clothed. He did say these things. We have discipleship courses. Oh, we all have discipleship courses in our churches. And we never tell them what Jesus says a disciple has to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. Does he say this? but we're not gonna take him seriously. I mean, no wonder Gandhi said, everybody knows what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, except for Christians. And you know exactly what he meant. I mean, if you take a survey of Christians, you will find that they, more than the general population, will support capital punishment. Even though Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You say, but if somebody commits a capital crime, shouldn't there be capital punishment? It's no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You say, well, what do we do with our enemies? <laughs> Gee, I, I'm disappointed most Christians are that we didn't bomb Syria. God, they're disappointed in Obama because he didn't. I'm disappointed in him too, but I think not bombing Syria. You know, he ended up going along with Putin. That's wonderful. I mean, all I know is they're getting rid of weapons of mass destruction and they're not killing people in the process instead of these stupid drones that are not only killing terrorists but innocent people left and right. Are they not? Is this, I mean, if you're gonna do the Jesus thing, if you're gonna do the WWJD thing, do you do the 
The question is, can you participate in militarism? Let me just say this. It says, it says this. The Iraqi war cost the American people, get this, $250,000 a minute for 10 years. $250,000 a minute. Suppose we had spent that money on feeding the poor, clothing the naked, setting up clinics, uh, giving education, creating an economic infrastructure. You're saying you're being, you're being unrealistic. No, I am being biblical because that's what the Bible says to do with your enemies. Shane Claiborne stood up in the National Youth Workers Convention and simply said, I, you're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached. There was a gasp. You know, who does this arrogant kid think he is? He opened the Bible, read the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of Matthew. He ended and said, well, we'll all agree, won't we? That is the greatest sermon ever preached. But then, we're not going to take him seriously. We think he was only kidding. The reason why we don't preach the Gospels is because we don't like what the Gospels say. It's easy to believe in justification by faith in the Pauline epistles. But are we willing to take Jesus seriously? Are we willing to take him seriously? People say, do you take the opening chapters of Genesis literally? I want to know, are you ready to take Jesus literally? That's a fair question. So let me say what the cross is so important about. Jesus prescribed a lifestyle. The lifestyle of what it meant to be a total actualized human being. But he only preached it until the cross. It wasn't until the cross that in the end, he practiced what he preached. Blessed are the merciful. Does he do that when he's hanging on the cross? Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad and rejoice. And did he do that on the cross? Blessed are ye who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. Does he do that on the cross? Blessed are, are the poor in spirit. Did he not pour out his spirit and emptied himself spiritually on the cross? Everything that Jesus ever taught, he lived out. We have in him the perfect example, and the actualization of his lifestyle was not complete until Calvary. Without Calvary, it wasn't complete, but it became complete on Jesus. So there's this way my thinking has been going. I... I don't want to enter into the arguments of the penal substitutionary doctrine of the atonement or any of those doctrines. I think they are all true. They're all true. But they only are hints and, and suggestions of a truth that is so deep that no theology of the cross can, can capture them. But the resurrected Jesus, he can invade me and get this. This is the final point. He can empower me to do what the Sermon on the Mount makes impossible. When in fact you read Jesus and the 10th chapter of Mark and they say, what you're asking of us, Jesus, is impossible. And the answer is, you're right, it is impossible. But with God, with Christ in you, all things are possible. You cannot live out the teachings of Jesus unless you are empowered by the resurrected Jesus who wants to invade you and cleanse you and empower you. And that's where our salvation lies. And if Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is vain, you're still in your sin. Stop there. Do you feel a little bit of energy in the room? 
Any homo sapiens out there with a question? Uh, who would like to get us started? This is a pretty precious time to have this kind of conversation. John, step on up here real quick, because I don't think I have much cord. So if you have a question, come on up, John. Well, can everybody hear him? Okay. I believe it's true. I have no idea. Uh, you know, but I, I, think, I think I have to say what I just said at the end of my talk. I believe that all the doctrines of the atonement are true. It's just that believing in a doctrine will not save you. You have to have a relationship with the resurrected Jesus. That's where the transformation takes place. Doctrine is important, but I'm not going to argue over this doctrine or that doctrine because if they give me the ransom theory, I say that's true. They give me the penal substitutionary doctrine of the atonement, I say that's true. The propitiation doctrine, that's true. They all point beyond themselves. You know, all I know is Jesus is alive. Let me say this. The first time I began to hunger for a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus when I was in high school, and there was this girl who was Pentecostal. Now, I'm, I'm just about 79, a few more months ago. In February, I was 79. So this was way long ago, and the Pentecostal movement was just starting. Now they're all over the place. You probably, they probably even sneaked into this meeting. <laughs> and we're talking about Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. Do we understand each other? But they're all, and this, this girl, this girl went through a literal transformation of personality after she had her Pentecostal experience. And she radiated joy and aliveness. And I went to her church to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And they called us forward and they knocked people on the head. And everybody they hit fell over except me. And they kept on knocking over people. Then the guy came back and hit me again. Nothing. And I went home depressed. And it was a Catholic guy who helped me out of my doldrums. He gave me a book by St. Ignatius called The Spiritual Exercises. And I learned new ways of praying. Because up till then, I prayed Baptist. I'm Baptist. You don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven. Amen? Why take a chance? That's what I'd like to know. Why are you doing that? But I'm Baptist, and I knew, only knew how to pray Baptist, which is basically reading off a list of non-negotiable demands of the Almighty. You know, like my son when he was seven years old, coming into the living room and saying, I'm going to bed. I'm going to be praying. Anybody want anything? <laughs> but aren't our prayers sophisticated versions of the same thing? Telling God what God already knows. He knows what you need before you even ask. Please, I make my request known, but to establish dependency, not to inform. But I got to tell you this. Ignatius taught me new ways of praying that made me able to be invaded by Christ. I wake up in the morning before I have to. And it takes me at least 20 to 25 minutes to become still and quiet. C.S. Lewis talked about driving back the animals, the 101 things that come in to captivate my thinking the minute I grow up, get up. I get up. My head starts spinning with all the things I have to do that day, all the things from yesterday. I've got to push them aside. He said, you've got to get rid of the animals. And then there's nothing. There's nothing. Save Jesus. More specifically, Jesus on the cross. Now, here I'm going to answer your question. This is what I was getting to. 
and I surrender to Jesus on the cross. You say, you can't. It happened 2,000 years ago. Here I reach out for a little help from Einstein's theory of relativity. Einstein points out quite pointedly that time is relative to motion. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. If I put you in a rocket and sent you into outer space traveling at 160,000 miles a second and said, come back in 10 years, when you returned, you would be 10 years older. But all the rest of us would be 20 years older. Traveling at that speed relative to us, our 20 years would be compressed into 10 years of your time. If we got you traveling at 170,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be compressed into one day of your time. If we got you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, which we cannot do. Because as you approach the speed of light, your physical body would expand in weight and size towards infinity. So don't let anybody ever say you're fat. Just say, I'm traveling too fast. That's what you tell them. But, 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 if I could get you traveling at the speed of light, all of time would be compressed into one eternal now. There would be no passage of time at all. That's God time. That's why Jesus could say, before Abraham was what? Why would he say present tense? I am. Bad grammar. He should have said before Abraham was what? I was. No, before Abraham was, I am. That's present tense for me. I am the alpha, the omega. I am the beginning and the end. The very name of God suggests timelessness. I am that I am. No wonder certain theologians like Martin Buber would say, God cannot be known as an object. He can only be encountered as a person. He cannot be, whenever they, you get a theology book, a theology of God, they're going to describe God in the next 50 pages. Come on, you've got to encounter him. Oh, the best illustration I have for that, incidentally, is this. Star Trek Three. Cybok and his followers take over the spaceship Enterprise and are going to take it through a dark hole if, you, if you're a Trekkie. And there's this wonderful conversation between Cybok, who turns out to be Spock's half-brother. Spock is the rationalist, the true, in Nietzschean terms, the true Apollonian. Total reason, no emotion. You know, if the spaceship Enterprise is going to be destroyed by Klingons, he will say to the rest of the crew, I fail to see how emotion will change the equation. You know, no, no feeling. Cybok comes and he says, Spock, when we were growing up on Vulcan, we were the two bright ones, the two brilliant ones. But we went our separate ways, Spock. You thought you could reason your way to the truth. You, could, you thought you could think your way there. That's obviously false. If that was false, if that was true, then brilliant people would know the truth and stupid people wouldn't. But in my experience, Spock, some of the most stupid people I've ever met have a handle on the truth. And some of the most brilliant people I know haven't got a clue. And then he said, you don't understand, Spock. You can't think your way to the truth. You have to feel your way there. You have to love your way there. Love is the way you get to truth. I thought, boy, that preaches. That, if you can't preach that, you can't preach, man. I mean, that's it. But the point is, I'm lying in bed. There's 2,000 years separating me and bed, Jesus on the cross, 2,000 years ago. You know, that ugly image of Jesus on the cross. He's on the cross 2,000 years ago. But because he is God, he is simultaneous with me as I'm lying in bed. 
The 2,000 years separating me and Ben, Jesus on the cross, are compressed into the same eternal now, which means in the now. I don't ask for a theory of salvation, a doctrine of the atonement. I surrender. And Jesus reaches across time and space in his eternal now and touches me and like a sponge absorbs out of me everything that is dirty and dark and ugly or as Star Wars suggests, my dark side. He absorbs it into his own body, which is why he cries in Gethsemane. He's not afraid of dying. He knows he's going to rise again. He's predicted his resurrection how many times? Nor is he afraid of the pain even though it's agonizing. He weeps and cries and begs for a plan B because he knows when he hangs on Calvary's tree, he's going to reach forward and backward in time and mystically absorb into his own body every filthy, dirty thing that you and I and others in humanity have created. And he's going to absorb them. The Bible says this. It says, he who knew no sin, what? No, he doesn't just take the punishment, which is the doctrine of the atonement of substitute. He takes the punishment first. Oh, no, he becomes sin. He absorbs it. He who loathed sin, who despised sin, absorbed it into his own body. Jesus, I was talking to some kid at Wheaton who was screwing his girlfriend with regularity. And because he was a true Calvinist, you're the guy, said it's all under the blood of Christ. I believe in tulip, eternal security. Jeez. I said, the next time you're screwing your girlfriend, I hope you can hear Jesus screaming in agony because at that very moment, he is absorbing what you're doing. He is making it his own. And Paul says that when you commit fornication, do you not realize what you're doing to the body of Christ? Yes, on the cross, something wonderful happens. But as Soren Kierkegaard says so well, he is the eternally crucified. He is constantly reaching across time and space and like a magnet drawing out of us the dark and sinful dimensions of our humanity and making it his own. Or as the Orthodox Church, you mentioned the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox liturgy has this. On the cross, he becomes everything that we are in order that we might become everything that he is, the actualized human being. So I do see the cross as of ultimate significance, but this... Theology of the cross is in the now. And of course, now is very interesting. Now is where I am. But you know that now does not exist in time. Have you ever thought about that? You can't say the next minute is now, the next second is now, the next millionth of a second is now. Now is the non-existent point where the past meets the future. But now is where I am. And now is where Jesus is. And there's where I meet him. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time of salvation. Are you willing to surrender to Christ and let him cleanse you? We all know the verse in 1 John, 1st chapter, 9th verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just. He will forgive us of our sins. And you Presbyterians are big on that one, man. You've got the Apostles' Creed down pat. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. He will forgive us of our sins and he will what? Do you know the Bible? He will cleanse us. Now please, don't tell me you don't need cleansing. Don't tell me you don't need to be connected with the eternal Christ and have all the dark things in your life sucked out of you into his precious body. 
That's what it means. That's why the scripture says so well by the Apostle Paul, you dare not sin that grace may abound. Yes, he'll cleanse you of your sin, but every time you sin, he screams in agony. So think twice before you sin. Because in the words of Hebrews, the sixth chapter, you crucify him anew. Another question. <laughs> On a lighter note, <laughs> as a young pastor, I, I never really preached much on the penal substitution theory because, you know, you can fumble that word. <laughs> Another question. Hey, we have a tweet, uh, a question for Tony Campolo, Simply Jesus. It's by Jay. We, why have we become fixated on the cross and not the resurrection? Do you feel like you handled that earlier? I think I did. Yeah. I think he did. Because of that. Well, he didn't say why, why we are so fixated on the cross. No, but let me, let's go, because that was helpful. I felt like you said some good, strong things there. I would open up another question. And you in the back, and you speak really loudly. Because they are not surrendered. Did you repeat the question? She, no, the question was this. Why do Christians live such powerless lives? Did I get it right? Thank you. And the answer is that we think we're saved by accepting doctrines, by saying yes to propositional truths. And you can say yes to all the doctrines, you can affirm all the doctrinal truths, and not have a relationship with the resurrected Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus when he invades us, empowers us to live out the will of the Father. You are my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you, but you won't be able to do it. Without me, here's what he says, without me, you can do what? Nothing, nothing. Get it, without me you can do nothing. So we don't simply preach a morality. I mean, when you say all the religions of the world except Jesus, they all do. They love the morality of Jesus, but none of them know how to access the power wherewith you are able to live out the morality of Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You're too weak. You're too weak, but the Holy Spirit will empower you, and what, is, what the flesh makes impossible, the Spirit filling you is possible. Does that help? Well, you know, that, he's the empowering agent. I mean, it's like putting your finger in the socket and letting the energy flow into you. That's Christ. Go ahead. Hi, Tony. I'm Sam Strosser. I was the founder of Love and Action, the AIDS ministry that you were on board yeah. many years ago, 1980s, 1990s. I've been living in Saudi Arabia with Muslims for the last two years. And I was sent here by a mom. Yes, yeah, I saw that. Tell them to send me a letter. If send me a letter, I'll go. Okay? Okay. And my wife will hate you forever. <laughs> but the blood of Christ will take it. <laughs> Let me ask another. Okay, we got another. We know there's Pete. Uh, when and why? When and why did we stop taking Jesus seriously and start explaining him away? 
Well, there's two reasons for that, but they're related. In the words of Chesterton, it's not that Jesus' ways have not been, uh, have not been, uh, have been tried and failed. It's they, when they have been tried, they've been found difficult. The truth is that Christian, Jesus, the way Jesus has called us to live has never been tried, has never been tried. And so it's not when did we stop taking Jesus seriously, except for the very early days of Christianity that we haven't been taking Jesus seriously at all. And I think the ultimate time came with Constantine, when we had to compromise on the war issue. Because every theologian or his church historian here will tell you the church was committed to nonviolent resistance up until Constantine. Nobody's going to argue with that. The history of the church, Irenaeus, Chris, 